all stand together this morning. So glad you could join us at Celebration Church today. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are really excited about the upcoming Widener Center event on November 2nd. We are calling it One Big Celebration. And uh, it's going to be an amazing get-together. We hope you can make it. Let's take a look at this. be a good time. Every year we get together like this, so all of our campuses meet in one place, and if you haven't been to the event, like I said, you're going to really have a good time. This year, we're asking that each Celebration family bring, bring a special offering on that Sunday, something beyond your normal giving, so together we can put kind of an extra injection of cash uh, into our Go Beyond campaign. Uh, here are the latest totals we have for our different campuses. Appleton at 40, almost 47,000. Stevens Point, 103. West Green Bay, 118. East Green Bay, 451. 720 the total. Isn't that awesome? Let's have a big hand for this success. So, uh, as you can see, we're making steady progress. And uh, we're going to give this a huge boost on November 2nd. And again, join us, please, as our celebration campuses come together and rejoice in what God is doing. We hope that you'll make it. The uh, title of my message this morning is, This Can't Happen, I Said to God. And I want to read from Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Let's go there. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
Have you ever told God what he should do? Uh, I have. Uh, at the moment, you know, it always seems like a perfectly good idea, and it makes perfect sense, and then a little time passes and your sanity returns, and uh, you realize, eh, maybe I didn't have all the information or whatever. Uh, you know, we hate losing control, don't we? Mostly because we were designed to be in control by God. He told Adam in the beginning, I want you to rule in the garden. You name the animals. You take care of the landscaping. You be the caretaker. So, of course, that's what Adam did. And we assume that he did a very good job at it until one of the snakes got out of the cage. And that wasn't so good. A series of unfortunate events followed, and Adam was stripped of his rule in the garden. And he was still wired to rule and control. He didn't have the authority to control, but he did have the urge to control. Ever since, when we descendants of Adam feel like we're losing control, our inner wiring kicks in, we do what has to be done to assert ourselves, and uh, it almost never turns out well, does it? On March 30th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan was shot on the 69th day of his first term in office. He became the first American president to survive being shot in an assassination attempt. What also stands out about that day was the fact that Alexander Haig, who was Secretary of State at that time, held a press conference as the president was undergoing surgery at the hospital, and Haig announced to the nation, I am in control here. Well, technically he was, because Vice President Bush was not in Washington, D.C. at that time. He was on his way, but it didn't take the press long to criticize Haig's lack of tact and ill sense of timing, and it became a political joke. Why was it a joke? Well, mostly because it came off as authority overkill. Ironically, by trying to bring reassurance to the nation, I'm in control here, it actually made people feel more uncomfortable, and in some cases it bred a lot of fear and unease. What's going on? What's going on? And the nation was literally holding its collective breath, and he's just making things worse. So Mr. Haig, it would have been much better if he'd have just been quiet and let us know the president's okay, and the vice president will be here in a moment. I'm in control here. What's your reaction when somebody says that? Uh, most of us just kind of roll our eyes seriously. You're really saying that? It's the boss who reminds you that it's my way or the highway. It's the husband who has to remind his wife he's the head of the home so she better listen. It's the teacher or professor who tries to play God in the classroom. It's the police officer or the customs officer who uses his position to bully you in public. It's the religious leader who crams his teaching down your throat. It's the father who puts an emotional and sometimes physical vice grip on his kids because he knows he lost their respect a long time ago. I'm in control here. Well, not really. I want to talk this morning about how you can be free of that. One of the greatest revelations a person can have is the fact that he is not in control. It is true that we lost our right to control, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, their rebellion, and the more we try to regain it, 
the worse it gets, the more people are hurt, the more God resists us. Why fight that battle? Really? We don't have to. God has a wonderful revelation in store for all of us, and that revelation is this. We don't have to control the universe. He's got that covered. So we just read about Peter telling Jesus what was not going to happen in Matthew's gospel. Now, starting in chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel, there's a change. A change came about regarding the mission of Jesus. Until that time, he was pretty much at liberty to go wherever he wanted to go and do whatever he wanted to do, say whatever. But after this chapter, things changed. He became more cautious. He warned his disciples, don't go around broadcasting my miracles. He reduced his travel schedule. He kept more to himself. It was just his closest followers now. Something dark was right around the corner, and his whole strategy just changed. And from now on, he was saying to his guys, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Don't say anything about what I just told you. Jesus took the disciples aside here in chapter 16 and told them about the darkness that was just around the corner, telling them that he was going to be killed by the people in the temple. But on the third day, he'd rise again. Peter's response was, never, Lord. <laughs> this shall never happen to you. Why did he say that? Well, put yourself in Peter's place. Suppose you were the disciple, and you were the one who had put his life on the line. You were the one who had been following this guy around for three years. You were identified with him. You were well known as one of the followers. I mean, what's the first thought that comes into your mind when your rabbi says, I'm going to die in Jerusalem, they're going to kill me? In a split second, your brain begins to reason, wait, I'm associated with him. I'm a fully devoted follower of his. That means if he dies, I die. This is not good. And can you see your brain responding like that? I know mine would if I was in that position, in which case, out of sheer fear and self-preservation, you reply to him, you insist to him, this is not going to happen, so stop talking about that, you're freaking me out. End of story. No more of this talk, Lord. But Jesus didn't drop it at that point. Go on, Matthew 16, 23. He looked right at Peter and replied to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, why would you go speaking to a member of your team like that? Can you guys picture Pastor Mark out in the lobby Sunday morning after, after service is over? Hello, how are you? Get behind me, Satan. You no longer savor the things of God. That's not the way to win friends and influence people, is it? Let's just say, if I think that I can tell God what or what not to do, I make the mistake of thinking that I'm in control. It usually does not work out well when that happens. Peter would have been much better off saying to Jesus, Hey, Lord, you are scaring me here. Why are you saying that? But his fear kicked in, and he just blurted out, 
This is not happening. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why did Jesus say that? What did he mean by that? Did Peter all of a sudden become the incarnation of the devil? I mean, had, had he all along been cloaking himself as the spawn of hell? No, no, that was not the case. Peter was just a guy. He was just a regular guy. All of a sudden, he came face to face with his own mortality, and his instinct for self-preservation just kicked in, and he said to Jesus, this is what he said, you're not going to do this, but what he meant was, I'm not going to do this. And Satan used Peter in that weak moment to try to divert the Son of God from his true mission. Jesus knew what was happening. He, he knew Peter was scared. And what's more, he knew that Satan was taking, taking advantage of that moment, trying to derail the plan of God. Satan, get out of here, you control freak. On, out of here. You're not in charge. Turn ahead to the next chapter in Matthew, chapter 17. We would think that Peter had learned his lesson, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm not in control, I'm not in control, I'm not in control, and Lord, please don't call me Satan anymore. <laughs> so Jesus, Peter, James, and John head up the side of this mountain, Matthew 17. It's six days later, six days since Jesus called Peter Satan. Not a long time, not really long enough for Peter to forget his previous mistake. And here's what happened. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so Peter, remember, you're not in control your master, Jesus, is in control, and you definitely don't want to become the mouthpiece of Satan again. But here you are on a mountain. Your master literally transforms in front of your eyes into this brilliant, beautiful being, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And Moses and Elijah appear, and they are beginning to speak with Jesus. And somehow, somehow, Peter... You just cannot shut up and enjoy the moment. You once again feel compelled to say something because you know you want to be the boss and you have something very important to contribute to the conversation going on between two dead men and God. And so Peter says to Jesus, verse 4, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I mean, this, guys, this is a scene straight out of the office. This is a Michael Scott putting his foot in his mouth moment, right? Peter, Peter, in the actual presence of God, gazing on the Lord of the universe, Christ conversing with two of the greatest men who ever lived, but not stunned silence from Peter, not awe and wonder, not humility or awareness of the moment, but I've got something to share here with you guys. <laughs> this is quite a meeting, isn't it, huh? How about I 
put up three shelters for you guys in case it rains. What compels a man to speak for God or to God in this way? In light of God's Son just calling you Satan, wouldn't that predicate silence and humility? <laughs> and yet, it hasn't even been seven days, and you're in control again? Dictating events, spelling out plans, making uncalled-for suggestions? What? You know, Elijah and Moses were speaking to Jesus. They're not speaking to Peter. Peter and, and, and Jesus is speaking with Elijah and Moses. He, he's not speaking to Peter. It was his intention at that point, Jesus' intention, that Peter was present to observe but not contribute to the conversation. It was, once again, Peter's pathetic attempt at introducing an element of human control in an absolutely divine moment. Well, Jesus didn't say anything to Peter, but God the Father absolutely did. Matter of fact, the Bible says next that God actually interrupted Peter while he was making his suggestion to Jesus. While he, Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, did you hear that? Listen, do not speak. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, don't be afraid. Uh, except for you, Peter. You stay down. You, you need to be very afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. We are not done. Fast forward to Luke or to John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter said, okay, dump it on me, baby. Ice bucket challenge right here, right now. Wash me completely. Here we go again. A sacred moment just before the Last Supper. Jesus and the 12 in the upper room and Jesus humbling himself to wash their feet, providing this eternal example of love, service, and sacrifice Oh, uh, no, Jesus, Peter said, you, you're never going to wash my feet. And then, okay, here's what we'll do. You just throw the whole bucket on me. Peter dictating the terms. I'll follow, but I want to be the boss. I'm yours, but I reserve the right to object when you get it wrong, God. And clearly Jesus had once again gotten it wrong here. 
What? Wash my feet? Are you kidding? You're not going to do that. These conversations that Peter had with Jesus should actually be familiar to us. We've been through these conversations. We have all of us with God. Lord, you're not going to do that. Lord, I have a great idea. Lord, I'm not going to do that. Or Lord, here's what we can do. Does that sound familiar? We're talking about being free from having to be in control. You may say, well, Pastor Joe, I'm, I'm wired that way. My flag page clearly shows that I'm a leader. I'm, I'm from control country. I, I can't help it. You know, and I get that. I understand. But that's not what we're talking about here. Peter was a born leader, too. Peter's flag page probably came out control country, for sure, you know. And he ended up being in charge, actually, of a lot of stuff in the early church. What I'm talking about, though, has nothing to do with your personality profile or your gifting. It's all about the bigger picture. It's about coming to grips with the fact of God's transcendence in his universe, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his absolute control over every living thing and every event in human history, past, present, and future, is about me personalizing God's transcendence. Here are a couple of important steps so that we don't make the same mistakes that Peter made. First, try to get out of the habit of telling God what should not happen. Lord, this shall never happen. This is a surefire way of having your prayers ignored by God, telling God what is or is not going to happen. God, that sun is not going to come up at 6 a.m. this morning. I'm just telling you. God, I will not allow you to dip into my personal income or interfere with my life plans. God, you do not have my permission to tell me who I will marry. God, you do not have my permission to hold me to my marriage vows. We tell God things like that all the time. Let's not do that. That is essentially what Peter was doing when he announced to Jesus that in no way would Jesus suffer a painful death in Jerusalem. I mean, on the surface, it seemed like kind of this clumsy attempt at self-preservation. But Jesus saw it very differently. So lesson number one, don't tell God what's not going to happen. Peter told Jesus, he told him, you are not washing my feet. You are not going to die in Jerusalem. Bad idea. Second, don't tell God what is going to happen. Church, this is not becoming to us. This is not attractive to talk like this. It is awkward. It always ends badly. Narcissists and sociopaths behave like this. They tell people what's going to happen. But that's, that's not becoming to a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what James says. Now listen to you who say today or tomorrow we will go, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And then in Proverbs 19, it says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Peter said to Jesus, 
I think I'm going to build these shelters here for you guys. That's okay, isn't it? He was telling God what was going to happen. Lesson number two, don't tell God what is going to happen. That's not a good idea. So lesson number one, don't tell God what he can't do. Lesson number two, don't tell God what he must do. And lesson number three, avoid telling God what you are going to do. Here's the last verse to William Henley's poem, Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We fail miserably at being captains and masters, you guys. Ask any person who has been through Alcoholics Anonymous. Listen to the first two steps of their 12-step program. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step number two, we came to believe that a power, capital P, greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You see what they're saying by the inference there? My life became unmanageable. I surrendered to a power greater than myself. Then I became sane. In other words, the person thinking to manage his own life gradually loses his sanity. This morning, God gives you the freedom of not being the boss. He lifts from you the too heavy burden of charting your own destiny. He relieves you of the obligation to a never-ending frantic quest to please him, which also means that you don't need to plot or chart or plan or outmaneuver or second-guess God or boss him or forbid or scam or manipulate him. Those are not normal behaviors for human beings. They are the behaviors of humans who are empty and desperate and without God. How about this? Instead of telling God, how about asking God? Jesus made the same suggestion to his disciples. John chapter 16, verse 23. In that day, he said, you will no longer ask me anything, meaning, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Very truly, he said, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. That's my point this morning. We all have our ways of telling God what he's going to do and how he should do it. That's what Peter thought until he realized that it was more important to ask than to tell. Ask for the right things at the right time. God is listening. He will answer. And according to Jesus, your joy will be complete. With God, it is always ask, don't tell. When we do it his way, we have joy. I promise this morning that if you will come to God, Today, 
and submit your life to him, he will allow that plan to unfold in perfect measure, in an exquisite timing that only he can orchestrate. All you have to do is relinquish your right to yourself, stop telling him what he can do or must not do. Peter, you know, eventually learned not to say to God, you can't do that. Eventually he yielded so completely to God that his life became a living testimony to the grace of God, a life that you and I still are reading about 2,000 years later. It's awesome. That's the good life. And that is the life that God wants for each one of you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and praise you for your goodness to us this morning. Thank you, God, that you are in control of your universe. Help us, Lord God, to learn the secret of asking, not telling. Help us, O oh God, to come to you with our requests, to ask humbly, to defer to you in all decisions. Help us, Lord, to learn not to tell you what is or is not going to happen. But instead, Lord, help us to understand you're in control. And, Lord, your will is going to be done in our lives as we yield to you. Thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, the fact that you desire only good for us every second. We love you and we praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.